read this story? Sweet. That's more than I would have thought. This was a story written by Robert Louis Stevenson in 1886. And you know, kind of the end of the Victorian age, uh, end of it, the 1800s, early 1900s, there was actually a lot of interest in what we would today call the metaphysical, sort of what were the parameters of humanity, what, what could a human aspire to or not, what did our humanity look like. And Stevenson, better known for stories like Treasure Island and Kidnapped, wrote this uh, story sort of exposing a bit, if you will, of the human soul, I guess we could say. And this book was published in 1886, so I don't even give a spoiler alert. If you haven't read this, that's your problem. That's your fault. I'm going to tell you key elements of this story. So Dr. Jekyll, he's a wealthy nobleman. He's tall. He's socially prominent. Uh, he's got lots of servants. You know, in British London society back in the day, he would have been in the upper crust. He's well-respected, etc. But he's got this interest in science, not just medicine. And basically what he does is he pursues a means of separating his own natures, his baser nature from his more noble nature. And he's successful in doing this. And so Dr. Jekyll, the nobleman, becomes Mr. Hyde. And listen to his description in part, and this is an excerpt in which uh, Mr. Hyde has met, talked briefly with a guy named Mr. Utterson. And Mr. Utterson is Dr. Jekyll's attorney. And Mr. Utterson doesn't know that Mr. Hyde is, in fact, the baser portion of Dr. Jekyll. So it says this, Mr. Hyde was pale and dwarfish. He gave an impression of deformity without any nameable malformation. He had a displeasing smile. He had borne himself to the lawyer, that is his interaction with Mr. Utterson, with a sort of murderous mixture of timidity and boldness. He spoke with a husky whispering and somewhat broken voice. All these were points against him, but not all these together could explain the hitherto unknown disgust, loathing, and fear with which Mr. Utterson regarded him. There must be something more, if I could find a name for it. It is the mere radiance of a foul soul that thus transpires through and transfigures its clay continent, the physical nature, um, the evil nature coming out of the physical uh, perspective. He says, Oh, my poor old Harry Jekyll, if ever I read Satan's signature upon a face, it is on that of your new friend. Utterson likes Dr. Jekyll. He considers him not just a client, but a friend. And he's wondering, what in the world do you have to do with this guy named Mr. Hyde? Why in the world would you call this guy your friend? Because Utterson, his attorney, knows that Dr. Jekyll has left all of his vast fortune to Mr. Hyde. And it's sort of ambiguous because it says, if I die or if I disappear, Mr. Hyde is to get all of my stuff. Well, he is Mr. Hyde. But the whole story turns on this thing that I've got, an, uh, if you will, the better angel of my nature. I've got my noble self, and then I've got my base self. And Jekyll's thing was this. By transforming myself, by ridding myself of my Dr. Jekyll, more positive nature, and by reducing myself to my base nature, I can go do whatever I want with no repercussions. 
because I take the drink, I become Mr. Hyde, I go, I'm, I'm a lustful, murderous, hateful, angry persona, all the baser elements of our nature. But I can go and sin in any way I want and no one will know because I'll go back home, I'll drink the stuff again and I'll go back to being Mr. or Dr. Jekyll. And so when you read the story in the introductory portion, a little girl has fallen down on the sidewalk and as Hyde walks by, he just steps on her and keeps going. But later in the story, he has just a, a vile murder of a well-known guy in town. But it's interesting because I, I don't know what Stevenson in the genesis of the story was thinking. But you could say the, the script comes right out of the Bible. That humanity, on one hand, we're fallen, right? We're born fallen. We bear God's image. But we're born in sin. David says, as in sin, my mother conceived me. We don't come as innocent babies. Anybody here have an innocent child? We never did, and I haven't seen one yet. We're born in sin. We're conceived in sin. Not, not because sex is wrong or having kids is wrong, but simply sinners reproduce sinners. But even within that, we would say there's some things we know that we aspire to something more noble. But also we know we have that baser side. And so... Um, He's examining that. He's exploring that. But Christians know that that's a pretty good description for the life of a Christian. That sounds astounding on one hand, but really when you read the scriptures addressed to Christians about our old self and our new self, it sounds an, awfully lot, an awful lot like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. We're going to be in Ephesians 4, 17 through 32 this morning, and we're still in our series Christ over all. Sorry, guys, let me get this going. Christ over all. And we've been through a lot of theology in three chapters. We've talked about seven points of perfection of unity in chapter four, the early portions. We've talked about diversity, the way God gifts and equips people in his church to serve each other, to build it up. That's what God's doing in the earth today. And in verses 17 through 32 of chapter four today, we're really looking at Christ over our Holiness. If you remember way back in chapter 1, we said the end to which all things are moving, God's grand plan, the grand scheme that unites all things in the universe is that God is reconciling all things to himself through his son, the Lord Jesus. And that eventually all things will be subject to Jesus, King Jesus, and his lordship. But guys, that begins in your life and mine. Jesus Christ overall doesn't begin with the world. And in fact, it doesn't begin with the church corporate. It begins with the members of the body of Christ, born again through faith in Jesus, receiving a new nature, the forgiveness of sins. The transformation, Christ overall, begins in your life and mine. But we've got this trouble because there's old things that cling to us like Mr. Hyde. So we're going to be in the text. If you don't have your own Bible, you can use a pew Bible. I'm reading from the ESV, and the pew Bible starts on page 978. So this is Paul continuing Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, he's not slamming the Gentiles, guys, in the sense that they're somehow worse than Jews. You remember because he says Gentiles are now part of the church. But remember, historically, the Gentiles don't know anything about the true and living God. They didn't know about the God of Israel, Yahweh, the creator God of the universe. So he's saying, don't live like those who, don't, who have no knowledge about God, and you'll see him flesh this out. 
In, and listen to the description. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. He's not doing any name calling. This is just descriptive. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous. They have given themselves up to sensuality. They are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. <laughs> but that is not the way you learn Christ. Now, if you're looking at the ESV, I don't know if this shows on your study sheet. I hope you have one. It's got an exclamation point. That was not in the Greek. <laughs> the translators are making sure you know. Paul is saying none of this stuff has anything to do with Christ or what's true of him, or what you've learned from him, or about him. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him, Christ, and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, think Mr. Hyde here, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And that's the life of Christ that the Holy Spirit places within us. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. By the way, that's a reference out of Zechariah 8.16. For we are all members of one another. Be angry and don't sin. That's a quote from Psalm 4, verse 4. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. This is a good one for husbands and wives. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil, and devil here is diabolos. It's the slanderer, the one who lies about others. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Remember back in chapter 1, this was one of the works that Paul said was true of us by God's doing, that the Holy Spirit at the point of our conversion had stamped us as God's own. He sealed us. You know, if you sent a letter back in the day, you poured hot wax on it, and the sender put his seal in it, and it said, this is from me, this is legitimate, this is mine, documents, etc. So God said by the Spirit, he was sealing us at that point of conversion in our redemption to the day of eternity. That's why we say Christians have no fear of death in life, because we know who we belong to. We've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's marvelous light. So we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit as God's own possession. Uh, and last, 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So he says, no longer live like those Gentiles. What does that look like? What does Gentile living look like, uninformed living look like if you go back in chapter uh, 4 to verse 1 he there says i therefore prisoner of the lord i urge you to walk or live in a manner worthy of your calling in christ paul here is saying 
live up to your new nature, your calling in Christ. Then here at verse 17, he says, no longer walk, no longer live like the Gentiles do. We could paraphrase, paraphrase, don't live down to your old base nature, your Mr. Hyde nature. Don't live like those who don't know God and don't know his grand plan to bring all things into subjection to him. Live like those who are part of that new kingdom life. So what, is, what does Gentile living look like? This is, he articulates this in verses 17 through 19. The key word he uses, though, is futility. This is on your study sheet. We can translate that word vanity, emptiness, or nothingness. What's a Gentile kind of life look like? Well, at the end of the day, it's a life void of any real meaning or content or hope or future. It's a life committed to vanity. Think of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vain, empty, wind, wind that's here for a moment and gone. And then he describes what that futility looks like. And I think depending on how you parse this or how you, how you um, take the descriptions he gives, it looks like there's seven points of futility that Paul is sharing with us. You remember, he gave us seven points of perfect unity earlier in this chapter. Here he's saying there's seven things that describe the life of futility. And the first one he mentions is darkened minds. That a futile mind is a darkened mind, and it simply means full of darkness. There's no light in it. There's no spiritual light in it. And your study sheet shows the comparison on this. In the, and these are all, by the way, references on the right side of your study sheet in this little um, box. Uh, chapter 1, verse 18, Paul said, The eyes of our heart are enlightened in Christ. And he prays that they're more enlightened in Christ. But he says the futile living of the Gentile, the one who doesn't know God, there is only darkness. There's no spiritual light. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 4 where... Paul talks about the light of the gospel dawns in someone's life. It's like the creation story from Genesis 1, but it's for that person personally, individually. <clears throat> that has never happened for this person. They're full of spiritual darkness. There's no light there. He says they are alienated from God's life. They're estranged. They're a non-participator in the life of God. Now, on one hand, we know they're in God's world. They're in the realm God rules over. But they don't have the personal experience of union with God. So they're living in God's world, but they're doing so as an estranged person. Contrast that to chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says there, the Christian has been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus' sacrifice has solved the rift between the Father and us. And in chapter 1, verse 6, it says we've been adopted into God's family. So in contrast to that, the Gentile feudal living is this sense of alienation. I don't know for you guys, but for me, before being a Christian, um, I just had this sense of aloneness. No fear of hell, but I was terrible. I was desperately lonely, even though I was interacting with people all the time and had lots of points of success in my life. I, I was estranged. I was alienated, and I could feel it. I just didn't know why. They're ignorant of God, and this is a big deal. Spiritual ignorance is a big deal. Do you remember what the initial fall was over? The temptation in the garden was for knowledge. And our parents got some form of knowledge. But it's a darkened knowledge, right? Because they're sinful. Now they know they're sinful. But this says, ignorant of God without knowledge of God today. But 
You remember what eternal life is described by Jesus in John 17:3 as? This is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God. Life is to know God. Well, this says, no, they're without any knowledge of God. Paul said in chapter 1, verse 9, we know the mystery of God's will. We not only know God, we're not only in relationship with him, but we know the secret things that he's about to do today. We know him and we know what he's up to. He says this too. He says they're hardened in their hearts. And the word there is interesting. It's porosis in the Greek. And it means petrified. And think about this for a second. Petrified wood used to be alive. But over time, the elements of its very nature change. Think of Jekyll to Hyde. And what was organic, biological life, becomes stone, essentially, over time. This this petrifying effect on a heart over time. And then that one's followed up by callous. It means their past feeling. And both of these... So living wood turns into unliving stone, and a callus is simply dead skin over living skin, isn't it? So both of these reflect someone that has no spiritual feeling, their past feeling. In contrast, chapter 2, verse 5 says we're no longer dead but alive. We're not, we're not something that was alive once but is dead. We have life now in Christ. He says they're committed to sensuality. Guys, this one alone, uh, our culture today lacking any self-restraint and beyond shame. No shame. That's the culture we live in today, right? You, if you try to shame someone, and there's, there's inappropriate shame, of course. I grew up as a good Roman Catholic, and shame was a way of life. Uh, there's, there's a healthy element of shame. Shame tells our conscience you're doing something wrong, right? That's the healthy aspect. But there's this whole other sense of shame in which people say, you're just trying to put someone down. It's manipulation. Well, this isn't about manipulation. This is no sense of appropriate shame that I should be embarrassed about something, but I'm not. I have no shame left. I can tell myself with impunity anything I do is okay. No shame. No sense of God's righteousness. In contrast, chapter 3, verse 17, Paul said they were rooted and grounded in Love. There's no commitment to my own sensual pursuits. There's a commitment to God first and to the good of others as well. And the last is impure. And in the Greek, this is a negative. It's without cleansing. There's been no cleansing influence on this person's life. Chapter 1, verse 4, we are holy and blameless. So remember, Paul's writing to Christians saying, don't live like the Gentiles. And this is the way he describes feudal Gentile living. Why is he saying this to Christians? Is he implying that Christians can live darkened lives like Gentiles? It would appear he is. He's saying, don't live like this. And when you read this list, he's saying, this is Mr. Hyde kind of living. And we'll get to this next, but you have a Mr. Hyde, and so do I. And he's saying, don't live in that baser nature. Verse 20, I love the Jesus exclamation point. You didn't learn this from Jesus. This has nothing to do with the Christian faith. So he says, avoid living in futility like Gentiles. And now he gets on to avoid living out your own sinful nature, your Mr. Hyde kind of nature. Look at verse 22. He says, put off your old self, your former life, your corrupt, deceitful self. In verse 23, he says, put on the new self. It's like God. It's righteous and holy. And guys, this is a a profound truth that I think the church generally is is severely ignorant 
lacking in knowledge of. Many of us entertain a false notion of what God does in our conversion and what discipleship is meant to be. So God doesn't save sinners. He crucifies them with Christ on the cross. And he puts within that old sinner a new nature, if you will, a Dr. Jekyll, a noble person, the very life of Christ. He doesn't clean up old sinners. He doesn't make you and me better. He says, basically, you guys are beyond redemption, so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to condemn you in my son on the cross, and through his resurrection life, I'm going to implant in you a new life that's my life. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must have a new birth experience. You know, the thought of religion as I get gradually better over time is absolutely a false notion. If I don't have a new birth, there's nothing going on spiritually. I had a conversation with a guy recently and he was talking about particularly Muslims and he's interacting with Muslims related to the gospel and Christ. But he's being so general, I said, there has to be conversion. Jesus says this. But he's articulating this, well, they sort of know about Jesus, they'll grow in their growth, and somehow that's okay. And it's like, actually, that's not what the Bible says. If you're not born again, you're not Christ. You don't have the spirit of Christ. All you have is your old Mr. Hyde nature. So God isn't saving sinners and cleaning them up. He's crucified us in Christ on the cross. This sounds radical, I know, but that's what God says. And I'll quote a couple of them here in just a second. So he puts a new nature in us. So we really have, guys, we have, Christians have a kind of civil war, a kind of Jekyll and Hyde experience in a way no one else in the world has because they can't. If you're not saved, all you've got is Mr. Hyde. This is funny, too, I thought in the story. So Jekyll is a tall, distinguished-looking fellow. But Mr. Hyde, he's dwarfish. And when the transition occurs, and by the way, you know how Dr. Jekyll ends, don't you? He ends squirming in death as Mr. Hyde. He gets to the point where he can't transition back from Hyde to Jekyll. And he dies, in the words of a movie, in freakish misery, squirming on the floor in his old Mr. Hyde self. Before our conversion, all we have is Mr. Hyde. So you can clean him up any way you want. You can get clothes that fit him. None of it changes the basis of his nature. People are religious inherently. Guys, people are religious all over the world. Religion saves no one. Buddhists are religious. Muslims are religious. Hindus, Taoists, you name it. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. None of that is meaningful. A religious person is still lost, living a Gentile, feudal kind of life until, and unless the point of conversion. So we have a war going on inside of us it's the old sinful self versus the new self. You can see this, by the way, on your study sheet. Look at Romans 6, verse 6. And if you've never read these passages thinking about your own life, these are key, important passages. It's not just Romans 6. Romans 6, 7, and 8, all three of those chapters. You know, up through Romans 5, God shows everybody in the world's condemned. The end of chapter 3 is Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. Chapters 4 and 5 are you saved by God's grace through faith. Abraham's the example of that. When you get to chapter 6, 7, and 8, God starts talking about what does the life of a believer look like? And he says, well, you shouldn't sin, chapter 6, verse 6, because our old sinful self, God says, was crucified with Christ. Do you know your life ended 2,000 years ago on the cross? That in Christ, you're understood to have been crucified on the cross with him 2,000 years ago. 
not just that Jesus died for us, that's atonement, but that we died with Jesus, that's the very reason that we can be born again. Death to the old, life to the new. Uh, chapter 6, verse 11 in Romans says, consider, and the word there's the math term. It's you add up the facts, look at what God has done, you come to this conclusion, you're dead to sin and you're alive to God. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. In fact, in that passage, he says, the flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit lusts against the flesh, they're opposed to one another. That's civil war going on within the Christian. That's Jekyll and Hyde. Colossians 3 has the same language as Ephesians, put off the old, put on the new. Friends, this is the daily battle for the Christian. You know, we, we say... Uh, I made a mistake, and you say, no, you sinned. You said yes to your Mr. Hyde nature. We're called to get up every day and put to death the old and walk in the new. Your new nature can't sin. It's Christ's life. First John talks about this. It's Christ's life. It never sins. It can't sin. Your old sinful self, your Mr. Hyde, it never does an act of righteousness. Everything it does is tainted by sin. It's self-serving in one way or another. The most religious among us, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, I could give my body to be burned, and if I don't have love, the love of God, renewed, regenerate love, it profits me nothing. So we've got to be clear on this. If you're not a Christian, you don't have a new nature. And the message you need to hear is you've got to get saved. You've got to do what Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And that's just saying to God, I accept the payment Jesus has made on my behalf. Jesus died for my sins. He's my ticket to heaven. Lord, that's what I want. We don't, it's through no works of righteousness on us. It's by God's grace through faith in Jesus. That's conversion. Once that occurs... Now we've got the civil war because now we've got a new life and we've got that old life too. And so that becomes the battle for the Christian. The world, the flesh, and the devil, the flesh is that old, old sinful nature of ours that never gets better. So you guys have a study sheet. On your study sheet, if you'll go to uh, Roman numeral 3, you can entertain yourself if you want. You can fill this out. You don't have to. This is for your benefit, not for mine. But hopefully it makes us think. I didn't want to simply rattle through a list. My hope is that when we talk through this one point at a time, we can sort of circumspectly say, Lord, am I living this kind of a life in this area or another? So if you look at this, uh, the list you've got on your study sheet, on the left are the negatives. They're from zero to negative 10. You can rate yourself, and we'll go through this in a second. On the right are the positives. There's not as many. You can rate yourself zero to positive 10. And this is just a way to say, am I living a Dr. Jekyll, noble, or a Mr. Hyde, base kind of life? To what degree is my life characterized by the old or the new? This is for you. Or if it just helps you think, that'll be good too. So the first thing, the first negative Paul talks about, and we'll go down the negative list first, falsehood. So if you say a lie and we say, oh, I don't lie, and I'm thinking, well, do you exaggerate? You know, someone said the truth needs no help. Do you exaggerate? Do you minimize? If you argue with someone else and you're relaying that story, do you tell it honestly? 
Or do you shade it so that you're the prince or the princess and the other person is the frog or the toad? How truthful are we? White lies, it's okay. I said that because it got me out of a scrape or I was really helping somebody else, so I didn't tell the truth. You've got two times here in Ephesians in which it tells us as believers to tell the truth. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth. How about when we fill out our taxes? Do you guys hedge on your taxes? That'd be lying, wouldn't it? To what degree are we characterized by falsehood? Sins of anger. Um, usually anger is tied to our pride. Guys, and I confess, I've battled pride and anger all my Christian life. I'd memorize the verses out of Proverbs. Don't associate with an angry man, you'll only learn his ways. Save an angry man now and you'll only have to, to do it again. I warn myself about this all the time because that's where I fall. That's what I tend to do. And it's always there. Uh, you know what? One of these terms I didn't mention, corrupt. The term corrupt is used twice here in this list of negatives. In its present tense... Your, your, your speech and your nature, your fallen sinful nature, it does not stay static. And the term corrupt, it means rotten. You know what your sinful nature does over time? It gets more rotten. Your sinful nature does not improve with age. It corrupts more and more fully into what it really is. And so, you know, you could be a Christian for 30 years and someone thinks I'm beyond sin and you say, no. No, you're not. Because your sinful self is more wicked today than it was yesterday or 30 years ago. Corrupt. It doesn't stay where it's at. Sins of anger, angry words, rejection of others in anger. Almost always, again, born of pride. How characterized are we by sins of anger? Uh, stealing. Most of us probably haven't run out to the store and stolen something. But what about failing to pay for what we've taken or used by, by any method? We know that we owe something, but we didn't pay it and someone didn't make us pay. Taking anything that doesn't rightly belong to us. You could steal time from employers. If you're being paid to do something and you're doing something else, you could be stealing from your employer. But an employer could also be stealing wages from employees. James' epistle talks about that. Um, giving to God, I don't want to be a hammer on this, so take. I'm trying to say this gently. Everything we have is God's, right? In the Old Testament under Malachi, the Jews were constrained by the rules of the law to give certain times, certain percents. And God said to them, you're stealing from me because you're not giving what's required. We're not under that covenant. And there's no such requirement of Christians, but the truth is everything we have is God's. And God tells us to be generous givers. Are we stealing from God or other brothers and sisters or from the work of the church because we're simply keeping the things God means us to give in his service? Taxes would be the same thing again. Are we stealing? Jesus said, pay to Caesar what's Caesar's and God what's God's. Are we doing that or are we holding on to things that we shouldn't? A corrupt speech, unwholesome jokes I'm thinking of, unflattering rumors or gossip regarding others, any cursing, using God's name inappropriately. You don't have to curse like a sailor to attach God's name to vanity. And that's really what that commandment means. Um, are we, sometimes if we say, God told me, God said, I'm thinking, I'm not sure God told you that. I'm not sure God said that. If he didn't, you're attaching his name to vanity because he didn't say it. That's abusing God's name. That's corrupt speech. When we leave someone in a conversation, do we leave the smell of rotting fish 
that's corrupt speech, uh, through that conversation? Does it stink when we leave after that conversation because of what we've said? Uh, grieving the Spirit, this sounds almost impossible. Um, kids, did you know that you can grieve your parents? Ethan, you can, right? Children can grieve their parents, right? Because their parents really, they, they want their kids to aspire. They want them to come to Christ, to grow nobly. And when their kids are really blowing it and they're choosing ways that dishonor God, the parents are grieved, right? That's not what they want for their child, for God's sake or their child's sake. Well, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, which is mind-blowing. The creator of the universe, the Spirit of God that hovered over the surface of the deep at the point of creation, you and I as Christians can grieve. And it goes like this. We deliberately don't do things we know we should. We deliberately do things we know we shouldn't. Have you guys ever had one of those moments where you know God just wants you to go do something or he just wants you to go say something? And you swallow hard and you don't. I've done that. And you've, it's not a good feeling. Or have you ever gone out and you know you shouldn't do something and you just say, well, I'm, I'm just going to do it anyway. Or maybe you say it like this, God will forgive me anyway. We're grieving the Holy Spirit in either of those processes. Uh, bitterness, usually tied to anger. Resentment builds over time from unresolved issues with God or others. Bitterness is something that takes time to grow. And guys, if you see bitterness in your life, it didn't just come up. It's been going on for a while, and it's unresolved. And bitterness consumes us from the inside out. And by the way, your, your bitterness may not be towards other people. Your bitterness could be towards God, too. God didn't give me what I thought he would in life. I've prayed, I've prayed, I've prayed, I've prayed. God hasn't answered my prayer. I can become embittered towards God as well as towards other people. It can, it can become a desire to see harm to others, and it hardens my heart towards God and towards others. Bitterness, the spirit of bitterness. Wrath is the Greek orge, orgy. And, you know, orgy just means overflowing emotion. Now, typically when it's used of God, it's overflowing righteous anger. Outbursts of anger. I am out of control. I'm emotionally being overwhelmed by my own emotions. I'm out of control. Clamor is interesting. This means um, yelling or screaming. But I think the ways we would tend to practice this would we complain. And we don't complain once. We complain often because we're trying to get our way. We're complaining often enough. We're wearing others out with our demands. We keep clamoring for what we want. Slander is lies about others. This is a big one. We, most of us would never say we slander others. But how do we talk about others? When, we, when what we talk about others, is it needful and is it helpful? Or do we spread things that we're not sure are true, but they're negative about, other pers about another person? That could be slander. Unintentionally, we might say. Gossip would go along with this. You know, it's possible to share someone with someone else to pray. I'm good with that. But is that what we're doing? Or are we simply taking some kind of perverse Mr. Hyde pleasure in speaking ill of others? And if that person were present, would we say the same thing? Or would we say it the same way? The last is malice, worthless, depraved, wicked, intentional desire for harm to others. So to what degree do any or all of those characterize our 
living, Mr. Hyde kind of living. Uh, Dr. Jekyll, look at the put-on list. You can rate yourself here. This would be more fun to rate ourselves on, wouldn't it? Truthful speech. Now, I love this. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 15 said, speak the truth in love. Liars become truth-tellers. Isn't that great? Remember that the feudal Gentiles, they don't, they speak falsehoods. But those who've been born again, they're now characterized by truth-telling. This is a huge, huge need. It's always needed in the church. If you can find friends that will speak the truth to you, you want to hang on to them because most people refuse to. Most Christians refuse to speak the truth or speak the truth in love. If you find someone who will do that, hang on to them. You know, for most of us, someone could say, or ask you the hardest questions, or say really challenging, convicting things. And if you knew they meant your best, you could probably hear it okay. But that's what we tend not to do, to speak the truth in love. How good are we at doing that? How committed? Appropriate anger. Now, this is interesting, right? Because part of what characterizes the feudal Gentiles are the, is this element of anger. So God doesn't say never be angry. He says be angry but don't sin. And guys, I'll tell you, there's only two or three verses in the Bible for humans that paint anger as a good thing. We almost always get it wrong. So this is a qualified. So he says, be angry. Be angry at the right thing for the right reason and for the right length of time, right? Be angry, but don't sin. Anger in God's way is short-lived and it's resolved quickly because unresolved anger turns to bitterness and malice. And you can have this in direction to other people, or you could have it directed to God as well. That one's very hard to get right, by the way. Uh, honest work. Those who were stealing now become those who are working and are able to give something to others as well. And guys, the welfare system, the, the long-abused system of welfare in the United States, and I'm not sure all the other factors, but they've produced a culture that we live in today that we call the entitlement culture that everyone thinks someone else owes them a living, that somehow I don't need to do anything and someone else will take care of me. And you say, where do you get that? And for Christians, this is just ludicrous. Second Thessalonians 3, I tell people regularly, this is the second verse we made our daughters learn. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. You have chores around the house. You take the trash out, you clean up after the pets, etc. The first verse is Ephesians 6.1, children obey your parents. So if you're here later, you might see some of our grandchildren. So when my daughters or their husbands are telling their children, little ones, you know, they're all little, to do something, this is what I say. Make Papa proud, obey your parents. (laughs) I hope they grow up thinking, that's what my granddad said. Obey your parents. Make me proud. That's what I care about. If they do that, they'll be halfway home. Um, He says, edifying speech. When you've spoken to others, do they feel encouraged? That's what we're supposed to do, to edify or to encourage others. Is that what we're doing? Kindness, this this is tough to sort of pull out. It really means goodness. Goodness is the best synonym for that. God's kind towards us. Are we characterized by kindness, good actions, good words, good attitudes towards other people? Is that what characterizes us? You know, I thought I was going to be short this morning, but I see I'm almost running a little long. So as we wind down, I want to, I want to focus on the last one, uh, forgiveness. ESV says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. 
if that's all it said and meant, that'd be enough, right? Uh, guys, how fully has God in Christ forgiven us? Absolutely. Is every one of our sins already confessed? Do you and I sin sometimes? We even forget about them and go down the road. And some of our sins aren't even confessed, are they? What does God do with those anyway? He forgives them. How often are you required to forgive someone who sins against you? Always. Does it matter if they ask you for forgiveness? No. Now, restoration and relationship, that's another thing, right? Trust, the ability to interact and all that. But for those people who have sinned against us, you know, what I try to do is pray for them. When I think of them and my, my Mr. Hyde nature wants to impugn them and knock them around verbally and mentally, I pray for them. Not because I'm a great guy, because I don't want to fall into bitterness. I want to forgive as I've been forgiven. So i got to pray. Lord, help them. Be there for them the way I want you to be there for me. And you see how this works. This is Roman numeral 4 on your study sheet. The term there for forgive is actually charizomai. And you can see the root there is charis. This isn't a technical word for forgive. It's, it's grace. But the thought is you've granted a favor. You've pardoned. You've graciously bestowed something on someone else. You've rescued. So really, when Paul winds down here, he says, the standard for how you interact with others, forgiveness and otherwise, the standard for you is God's standard towards his treatment of you. How do we behave towards others? How has God behaved towards us? That's the standard. God's loved us unconditionally. He's forgiven every one of our sins. He graces us every day. That's the standard. How fully do our lives look transformed? How noble, how Dr. Jekyllish, noble, upright, pure, enlightened are we living? Or how much is our life still characterized by Mr. Hyde kind of living? Base, carnal, old, self-centered, self-seeking, darkened. That's really what we're talking about. This is going to come up again, by the way, in chapter 5. Paul's going to keep going on this whole thing about what transformation is supposed to look like. But guys, this is the thing. God's work in reconciling all things to himself starts, you know what, I forgot all of my great slides. Let's see. See, there's the old and the new. Dirty, worn out tenny. There's put off. I thought they were pretty good. And there's put on. and there's, Yeah, sorry. In the moment. Uh, but that re God reconciling all things to himself, that starts with us. And this is one of those lists that just helps us say, how much is my life being, it being brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ? Because that's God's call. One day everything will be. But you and I get to be in the vanguard of what God is up to in this whole sphere of holiness, putting off the old, putting on the new. That we're new creations in Christ, 2 Corinthians, right? 2 Corinthians 5. We're part of a new kingdom. We have a new nature. We're part of the whole new world, the heavens and the earth that God is up to, that Jesus will rule over. So that's what we want to be about. Well, let's pray. Lord, help us to put off the old, put on the new. Thanks that you have given us the ability and the power, Lord, to walk apart from sin because that old sinful self has been rendered powerless through our death with you on the cross. Jesus, thanks that you died for our sins, for justification. Thanks that we died with you for sanctification. Would you help us to live up to that high calling today? In Jesus' name, amen.